night. We're going to have a, a prayer meeting. We're going to have some other special things going on. But as we, we're kind of in the home stretch here of, of winding down over this. Actually, there's five more after this. Sorry, my bad. Five more after these tonight. But we're at week number 16 tonight. We're talking about God is merciful. So look on your handout. Look at the first page of it for us here. I just want to get us to think about something. John Frame is a theologian who wrote a monster volume called The Doctrine of God. And it's just rich and full of a lot of stuff. And here's what he says. He said, God is a God who waits. Just pause there for a minute. I don't think this is what we typically think about because we're the fast-paced culture. We're always in a hurry. We have trouble waiting. I had to go to a doctor's appointment to see the hour just, just two days ago. And when I was there, I had to wait. They sat me in the room for 75 minutes so he comes. And I'm sitting there going, there's so much I could be doing right now. We're not people who like to wait. But when we hear that, it makes us pause. God is a God who waits. He can accomplish his will instantly. He can bring final judgment on the wicked immediately. But he chooses not to do so. He's choosing to write a drama and spread it out in temporal sequence. So he tolerates evil for a time, waiting until later to judge it fully. Now we learn that God's decision to wait is not arbitrary, nor is it mainly in the interest of creating a more interesting story. Rather, it's a function of his loving grace. So he gives people time for repentance. God waits to give people time for repentance. So this is what we're going to be thinking about tonight. It's a beautiful picture for us of tonight's attributes of who God is and how he acts um, accordingly. And friends, if it was not for the fact that God is a merciful God, a patient God, we would all be in a lot of trouble. Because if God was not merciful and patient, we would have all been struck dead a long time ago because of his righteous wrath, and we would have not be here tonight. So this is something we can praise God for, but also not just something we worship God for. It's something that can give us hope. And I want you to see that in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. He says, but, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So what is it he finds hope in? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Notice his mercies never come to an end. And so that gives us hope. So friends, when we're struggling to have hope, one thing that we can think about is God's mercies that never, ever End. So as we turn the page and get into this attribute of God's mercy, I want to begin with a simple statement. God's mercy is one of the most difficult attributes to classify and define. As I've been doing this study, this is not what I expected to find. This one has been one of the tougher ones for me to prepare for than all the others. And I thought mercy would be an easy one. Like, let's think about jealousy and wrath to come or some of these ones that stretch our mind like God's omniscience or omnipresence. This one I found actually to be a little bit tougher than a lot of the others in trying to think around on this. And there are several reasons for that. One is that three attributes get grouped together. God's grace, God's mercy, and His patience. We've separated those out a little bit, but some authors you read say there's no difference between grace and mercy and patience. If you read them and that's the only thing you read, it sounds pretty convincing that these are really the same thing. They're just expressions of God's goodness. In fact, Wayne Grudem, who I cite a lot in here, he's the one who argues that. He says mercy, grace, and patience is really all one and the same. It's just God's goodness just in different settings on that. So some people would argue that these are all to be together. Yet other people, you pick up their books and they say these are three totally separate, totally distinct attributes. And you need to see them as such. You read their book, it seems pretty convincing at the time at that point. And then even for the people who say they're separate, they define it in such many different ways. So this is one that you could take lots of different angles on because you would think something like mercy that seems like such a simple concept, but it's understood in such very different ways by different people. And so it can kind of be like, okay, which way are we going to take with it? So what are we going to do with it tonight? We're going to take mercy and patience together as an attribute tonight. And we're tackle grace in a few weeks as a separate attribute. The riches of God's grace is just so amazing that it deserves a week on its own. 
But I see patience and mercy as really being very similar. And so we're going to treat it accordingly. But realize if you pick up other people's books, you're going to see some people say these shouldn't be distinct. Other people will say these must be. So just realize not everyone's coming from the exact same vantage point. So let's begin then with how are we going to attempt to define God's mercy. Now, before you look and, and cheat ahead on this one and see what's coming, how have you heard mercy defined over the years? We've all heard people talk about what is grace, what is mercy. What is, how have you heard mercy defined? God not giving you what you deserve. Is that the one most of you have heard? That's the one I've heard most of my life. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. So that's the way we typically have, have thought of it. But as you'll see, that perhaps that's true. There's nothing wrong with that definition. But perhaps that's not the fullness of what mercy really is. I just want to suggest we need to go a little bit deeper than that in terms of what mercy really is. So here's several definitions. Let's look at several of them together here. First, A.W. Tozer says, goodness is the source of mercy. So let's just pause there on that one. He's saying mercy is coming out of God's goodness. Now, he admits when he writes us that there's a language barrier here. He's not saying that goodness is superior or that somehow God was good first and mercy came. He's not saying that. He's just saying that mercy is kind of like an offshoot of goodness. It's a further description of God's goodness. It kind of comes from his goodness on that. And other people, a lot of people take it the same way. Herman Bavink says God's goodness, or he's defining mercy as God's goodness towards those who are in misery. And that's a very common way some people define mercy as God's goodness, particularly to those who are in misery. Wayne Grudem takes the same approach, says mercy is God's goodness towards those who are in misery and in distress. Some way John Frame, who we looked at on the first page, says mercy is a sympathetic view of another's distress, motivating helpful action. So we notice all these guys who we quote a lot, they take mercy not as not getting what we deserve. They take it all as God's goodness towards people who are suffering, to people in trials, to people in distress. And there, there's a part of that, and that's true, but I think there's something else missing in those particular definitions. I think A.W. Pink starting us down the right track with his definition. He says, God's mercy is the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. Thus, mercy presupposes sin. And so he's starting to get into the fact that there's a sin factor in when we talk about mercy. We talk about mercy in terms of just distress, and we leave out the sin factor. We're missing something that I think needs to be in the definition. And he understands that generally all suffering is a result of sin, not a one-to-one correlation, but we have suffering because we live in a cursed and fallen world. There's sin, therefore we will endure suffering. But even beyond that, we deal with the suffering of our own sin, the distress that our sin causes, and the distress we face, the suffering we face because of other people's sin towards us. So I think pink's getting us down the right path. We can't define mercy without something related to sin. But then that leads me to what I think is the best definition I've found from lots of different authors, and this is from A.W. Tozer. He says, mercy is God's goodness confronting human guilt and suffering. It's God's goodness that confronts human guilt and suffering. And I like this definition because I think it has a both-and to it that we need. That God's mercy is directed towards human suffering. It does recognize that God's goodness to people who are in misery, God's goodness to people in distress, God's goodness to people who are suffering and in trials. But it doesn't neglect the fact that God's also confronting our guilt. And guilt, again, presupposes sin. That God in his mercy is tackling something with our guilt and something with our distress. And if you think about it, the greatest distress we face in this life is our sin problem. The worst things we face are because of our sin and our sin nature and the alienation that causes us from the Lord. And so I really like the way Tozer goes with that, again, because it's a both-and approach. And so my, my definition here is going to be mercy includes God forgiving sin and God showing compassion to those who are suffering. And so we're going to try to take it from, that, again, that both-and approach. Most importantly, we're going to deal with God forgiving sin, dealing with our guilt because we've offended Him. Again, God's mercy leads us to repentance. 
And yes, that means we don't get what we deserve, but it also deals with compassion. And though it's not on your handout there, if you want to jot down Luke 5, if you think about when the, the friends brought the paralyzed man to Jesus, and they dug out the hole in the roof, and they lowered their friends down, Jesus addresses the both and here with that man. Now, he doesn't do that every time, but it's a good example for us of his mercy in both ways. Because he looks at the man, the first thing he doesn't say is, get up and walk. He begins with what? Your sins are forgiven. He tackles the guilt issue first, the man's distress. Not one-to-one correlation, but the man had a sin problem, and the man had a physical problem, both and. Jesus tackles the sin problem, your sins are forgiven. He tackles the physical problem, rise, I tell you, take up your bed and walk. He does a both and there in Luke 5, 18 with the paralyzed man. And to me, that's the, the perfect picture of what mercy is. God forgives sins, and he shows compassion to those who are suffering. Sometimes God's mercy is simply called God's compassion. And so you'll see it in Scripture with both terms, and you'll see it as well um, in some writings in terms of both terms as well. So turn the page there, and let's look at where you see God's mercy throughout Scripture. Now, as we begin, I want you to notice as we look how much of God's mercy these, these quotations come from the Old Testament. We've already kind of debunked the false idea that floats around some of Christendom today that the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the New Testament is a God of mercy. We've already kind of tackled that one when we talked about the unity of God at the beginning of the study. That's just simply not true. God is always all the attributes all the time. He doesn't change. God is unchanging. We've wrestled with all that. But just notice here how much comes out of the Old Testament in terms of God's mercy. So start with Exodus thirty-three nineteen. And he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So here you see mercy flowing out of God as his actions towards people flowing out of his character. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. So again, if you've noticed, even in these first two references in Exodus, grace and mercy both appear side by side. So again, some people will say, well, look, they're really the same thing, so don't differentiate, but I think you'll see why we need to as we go along. But you do see that attribute of God right here in this. You as well, you see God's patience in here. He's slow to anger. We'll come back to that as well. Nehemiah chapter 9. This is a great text for God's mercy. I'll just listen to this. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. It's a pretty strong indictment right there, isn't it? Listen to what it says. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And they committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. So, for instance, beautiful texture for us. And this is just a good reminder to say here as well, God's mercy and God's discipline are not opposites. God's discipline is part of his mercy sometimes for us. And here God disciplines his people to bring them back to repentance in that. And that's all in this big picture of his mercy to them. Let's look at one in Psalms. We, we, could, we could look at many in Psalms. I mean, you see the word mercy throughout a lot of the Psalms in this. People crying out for mercy, describing God as merciful. But here's just one of many. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Again, here, notice that mercy is tied to the forgiveness of sins. So again, all the definitions that only deal with mercy in terms of distress, like suffering, I think missing here, because here, once again, we see it tied to sins. The Lord is merciful to them. He's patient. He's slow to anger. What does that look like? That means he doesn't keep his anger towards them forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. And friends, what a phrase to give us hope. God does not deal with us according to our sins. He shows compassion to us. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So again, there you see the word compassion, where we've been seeing the word mercy, but this is what the Lord has done. They're remembering his goodness, his compassion, his mercy to them. How about the book of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 2? And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And this is Jonah's complaint. I didn't want to go warn the people of what you were going to do because I warned them, you're merciful. You were going to forgive them. I didn't want them forgiven. I want to see them burn. But isn't that what we do a lot of times? We want God's mercy for us, but then we don't want to see it extended to other people as well. And so you see Jonah's complaint in this. He knew that God was a merciful God, and he was afraid that God would show mercy. He would be patient. He would be kind to these people and relent from disaster. In other words, he would forgive them. All from the Old Testament. Let's look at just a few from the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, this is the, the prophecy of John the Baptist coming. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender what? Mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light. So again, here God's mercy is seen in the fact that God was going to forgive people's sins. I don't think we talk about mercy apart from forgiveness in this. God is bringing knowledge of salvation to his people, and this is his mercy to do that. James chapter 5, verse 11. This phrase is starting to sound familiar, isn't it? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. You see where it's quoting from other texts you've seen before. You see this idea repeated throughout Scripture that God is merciful and gracious. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in steadfast love. We see this over and over and over in the Scriptures. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Why are we born again? Because of his great what? His great mercy. There it is again, mercy in terms of forgiveness of sins. I hope you're saying mercy is more than just not getting what we deserve. We have now, because of his mercy, been born again to a living hope. So there's two important truths, two important clarifications, if you will, about God's mercy. Number one, God does not have mercy. And it sounds kind of heretical at first. God does not have mercy. He is mercy. You know, it's so easy for us to talk about someone has this feeling, someone has this emotion. But friends, God, that's not God. We looked at the very first week about God's unity. If this is God, it's not like here's his mercy, here's his grace, here's his wrath. These aren't things external to God. These aren't things that have been added to God's character. 
God in his very being is love. God in his very being is mercy. God in his very being is holy. All these attributes are who God fully is in his very being. They're not external to him. So in Psalm 116, verse 5, you see, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. It's not our God has mercy. Our God is. His very being is merciful. That is his nature on that. So to quote A.W. Tozer two different times, we have two good quotes. He says, Mercy is not something God has, but something God is. And then because of that, if you remember back to we talked about God's immutability, God is unchanging. If God is merciful and God is unchanging, that means God's mercy does not change. God is not more merciful now than he used to be. God doesn't grow in mercy or get less merciful. His mercy doesn't change. It is who he is. And so here's what Tozer says. One fact about the mercy of God is that it never began to be. I've heard of men who are hard-hearted or careless, but they began to get stirred up and mercy blossomed forth. It never was so of God. God's mercy is simply what God is, uncreated and eternal. So think about that for just a minute. When we think of mercy in terms of God forgiving sins or God showing kindness to people in distress, we didn't need for, there, was, there was no forgiveness of sins before the creation and the fall. There was no distress before the fall. So mercy didn't start there. This is such a part of God's nature that even before the world was made, there was mercy in his being. Mercy was who he was, even before there was a way to even display that mercy. So if you're having trouble sleeping out, you can think on that while you're laying in bed about how God was merciful before there was even a way to demonstrate mercy on that. So this means that God's mercy is an unchanging attribute. With that said, that means that God did not become more merciful when Jesus died on the cross. Again, I think we have this mindset that kind of creeps into the church that somehow, look at how God was so strict with all the laws of the Old Testament. Jesus came and God became merciful. No, God has always been fully merciful even before there was a sin to be merciful about. And so he didn't become more merciful when Jesus came. Friends, God is not merciful because Jesus died. Jesus died because God is merciful. It is, and that's an important distinction. This wasn't, the cross wasn't just God becoming merciful. The cross happened because God himself is merciful on that. But with that said, another clarification for us is the second one. That is the expression of God's mercy is subject to his will. The expression that God's mercy is subject to his will. This is important because like we said early in the study, we're drawn to particular attributes, and people in our culture are drawn to particular attributes. Our culture obsesses with God's love and God's grace and God's mercy, and we forget about his jealousy and his wrath and his judgments and righteousness and holiness and all those other parts of who God is in this. You even listen to Christian music. There's a song, There's Only Love, There's Only Grace. I think they're talking about our experience, but it's, it, it, it kind of starts creeping into our thinking. God's mercy is not universally applied. Everyone is not going to stand before the Lord and be led into heaven because God is merciful. Everyone in distress, even believers, don't have their trials immediately removed. God is merciful. That is who he is in his being. And he just demonstrates his mercy in lots of ways. But how he expresses that, that mercy is not equally universal. It's subject to his good and perfect will. And so think back to the unity of God. Mercy does not act in isolation the way our culture treats it. God's wisdom, God's justice, all those things come together in the expression of his mercy. The attributes don't fight. It's not God's love wins over his justice. No, God is fully all these attributes all the time. And so how he expresses his mercy is consistent with his justice. It's consistent with all that he does. None of his attributes act in isolation. So in bold there in the middle of that page, page four, the giving of mercy is subject to God's divine will. In other words, the giving of mercy is up to God, not to us. None of us can demand God to give mercy. None of us can make God show mercy. When God shows mercy, it's because God wants to show mercy because he is God and we are not. 
that leads us to Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, the verse you never see hanging over people's sofa or the verse you never see on church signs or printed on walls. For he, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it then depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Friends, this text is really sobering for us because God's mercy is not based on any of our standards. It's not based on how, what a good prayer we pray. It's not based on whether or not we walk down an aisle or get baptized. God's mercy is not based on anything that you or I do. God's mercy is solely 100% based on whether or not he wanted to demonstrate it in a tangible way in that particular circumstance because he is God. I love what A.W. Pink says, It is not the wretchedness of the creature which causes him to show mercy. For God is not influenced by things outside of himself as we are. Mercy arises solely from God's imperial pleasure. He's not influenced by things outside of him on that. I mean, think about what causes us to feel merciful. You watch like the, with the hurricane victims, see what you saw in Houston, what you see in Florida. And we see these pictures of people in boats and their houses are, are destroyed. And we feel some mercy in our heart to the people who are suffering. But we're responding to external stimuli and what the news is feeding us. Most of us in the last weeks have felt a lot of mercy to people in Florida or to people in Houston. Most of us haven't paid a lot of attention to the floods in Central and South Asia. We haven't felt mercy to them. Why? Not because it's any worse. It's actually the floods there have been worse than here. But we're not inundated with that. We're responding to what the media is putting before us and the images. And so we're responding, feeling mercy to one part of the world but not the other. Not just simply because of what's been given to us. We respond to external stimuli. God's mercy is not like that. God's mercy is solely in his sovereign will of how he wants to show mercy. Well, how does God show mercy? What are the expressions of God's mercy? And there's a lot we could say on this, but here's several things that we should think about on this. First of all, God shows mercy in a general way to all of his creation. Friends, believer and unbelievers alike experience God's mercy. Non-believers across Montgomery still saw the sun come up this morning. They can still see the sunset tonight. Though they've rejected God and offended God's majesty, they have another day of life, another day to look to him and to see that the heavens declare the glory of God and to repent and believe. That's God's mercy to them, believer and unbeliever alike. Rain falls on the believers and unbelievers alike. Many people who hate God got food today. That's God's mercy to the world. The fact that an asteroid hasn't hit our earth and obliterated it, that's God's mercy to believer and unbeliever alike. That we're not sitting there looking up in the sky going, wow, it's getting bigger, and the earth is gone. That's God's mercy to believer and unbeliever alike, to all of his creation. We see this in Scripture, Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to what? All. And his mercy is over what? All that he has made. Friends, there's a general mercy that the whole world experiences here. Matthew 5, 45. For he, God, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. So we see God's mercy demonstrated in a general way to everything that he has made. The fact that anyone has life today is God's mercy mercy. Second of all, God does show mercy to people in distress. I love the way Tozer phrases. He says, God actively, and he made up a word here, God actively compassionates suffering men. I like that wonderfully well. See what it means by that in a minute, but we talk about compassion most of the time. Mercy is a feeling. He says, no, God just doesn't feel it. God acts on this. So God compassionates. He shows mercy to, to people who are suffering on that. See that in the book of Exodus. Here it was his people. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He shows mercy to them. He compassionates, to use Tozer's language, to his people there. 
You think of, I didn't write down, you can think of a lot of the Psalms of people crying out for mercy and God giving it in their midst of their distress. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, we see this in the ministry of Jesus. When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion, mercy on them, and healed their sick. Matthew chapter 15, verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me for three days now and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Friends, you know from the story, not all those people follow Jesus. He doesn't just give food here just to those who are going to repent and believe. The whole crowd, he blesses them. He shows mercy upon them in their hunger and gave them food right there. Or in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. Now notice this about Mark 6, 34. What is their distress here? Again, we usually think of mercy, if, again, the way a lot of people define mercy is only distress, like they're hungry, there's flood, there's famine, different things. Here, their distress is they don't know the truth. And so, again, don't miss this, that God's mercy comes in the gospel as well. The gospel is God's mercy coming. And so here, we see that the, the people's distress was not a physical distress, it was a spiritual distress. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he had compassion on them. And so, again, he's totally like he compassionated them. He showed mercy on them by doing what? By teaching them the many things, by teaching him them the gospel on that. And so realize here that in Mark 6, 34, the mercy God shows is what we would call missions or evangelism, sharing the gospel. And we've got to keep that in balance here because a lot of times when you, when you hear churches talk about doing mercy ministries, they can be a lot of good things. Feeding people, clothing the homeless, welcoming the immigrants. See, there's a lot of good things that come under mercy ministries. And I don't want to minimize those because those are good. That's consistent with the character of God. But if those things don't include the gospel with them, we're not showing the ultimate mercy people need, and that is to have sheep pointed to, or to be pointed to the shepherd so they can become his sheep. And what I see through a lot of Christendom, unfortunately, is a lot of very good mercy ministries that never include the gospel. And all we're doing if we do, quote-unquote, mercy ministries without the gospel is making people comfortable on their way to hell. And friends, we've got to make sure this is a both and not either. Or likewise, though, if a church does nothing but just share the gospel and preach at people and preach at people and be like, well, I know you're hungry, but listen to me tell you about Jesus, and we never feed them, we're neglecting God's will as well. This is, again, a both and, which goes back to our original definition of mercy. We're meeting people's needs, and we're also making sure their spiritual needs are met as well. So God shows mercy to people in distress. Think physical, think spiritual, both there on that one. Number three, God shows a special mercy to his own people. How does God show special mercy to his own people? Two ways. First, God's mercy to his people is seen in the forgiveness of their sins. Friends, the, again, the, the definition we start off with, a lot of people think of mercy is not getting what you deserve. Well, that's true here. That is accurate here. I mean, God is forgiving our sins, and so therefore we don't receive separation, and we don't receive punishment, we don't fall under his wrath, we don't go to hell. That is his mercy to us. We don't get what we deserve. But remember, God can only be merciful to sinners if he punishes the sin as his justice requires. The sin debt must be paid. Mercy is not sweeping on the rug, oh, I like those people, I'm going to ignore that. Like we said before, sin is never forgiven. Sinners are forgiven by the sin debt being paid by a sacrifice, by being paid by Jesus. Either we pay for the sin debt or Jesus pays the sin debt on that. So when Jesus pays the sin debt for us, we can experience God's merciful because our sin has been put on Jesus and the punishment has been paid. Therefore, people can experience God's mercy in terms of forgiveness. Psalm 51.1, great psalm to pray for, for forgiveness and confession of sin. Have mercy, O me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, 
Friends, when we fall short, when we sin, that is our hope. Like King David, remember, what is he confessing here? He's confessing adultery and he's confessing murder. And he's confessing adultery and murder and he's saying, God, have mercy on me. God's child, even if he's committed adultery and murder, can go before God and say, God, I need your mercy according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant, your multitude of mercy. Blot out my transgressions. And God did that for this one who was a murderer and an adulterer. And God poured out his mercy on his child and forgave him in this. He does the same for us. Psalm 78. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. How could he be compassionate? Because he atoned for their iniquity. He paid for their iniquity. He didn't just was compassionate to be compassionate. Atonement had to be made for his mercy to be shown. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Because of his rich mercies, friend, we are forgiven, and we are seated with Christ there. So we experience as his people God's mercy and the forgiveness of our sins. But second of all, God's mercy to his people includes his presence his covenant faithfulness, his provision. It is forgiveness, but it's so much more. And there's a lot of texts we can look at, but just one here from the book of Nehemiah chapter 9 again. This is talking about God's faithfulness even in their wanderings. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst, Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and in the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land. And it goes on. The whole chapter is this beautiful picture of what God did, and it's all in terms of you and your great mercies. Everything that was just described was God's mercies. You see forgiveness of sins. You see God's instruction and teaching them. You see his provision of food. You see his presence with them. You see all these things, and this is all under the umbrella of God's mercy. And then lastly on this, I want us to see that God's patience is an expression of his mercy as well. Again, some people would differentiate it. I think they're really very similar, that patience is one aspect of his mercy. Here's what A.W. Pink says. God's patience is that power of control which God exercises over himself, causing him to bear with the wicked and forbear so long in punishing them. The patience of God is that excellency which causes him to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. Because again, if there wasn't mercy and patience from God, the first time we offend his majesty, we'd be struck dead. But the mercy and patience of God gives us another day of life, gives us time to repent and to seek after him on that. So because to me those again this seem one and the same thing here. We see it in several places in scripture. Exodus thirty four six again, we looked at that one earlier. But the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, there says patience, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or Romans chapter two, verse four, could it be any clearer? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is patient to lead us to repentance. And so, friends, this seems overly simplistic to say, but we need to be reminded of we should be very thankful for God's patience with us. 
And I think we lose sight, I know I lose sight of God's patience and forget to thank him for that. Again, to quote A.W. Pink on this, he says, Let us review our own lives. It is not long since we followed a multitude to do evil, had no concern for God's glory, lived only to gratify self. How patiently he bore with our vile conduct. And now that grace has snatched us as brands from the burning, giving us a place in God's family, and has begotten us in, unto an eternal inheritance and glory, how miserably we requite him. If you don't know that word, we don't use that every day. That means how miserably we repay him or thank him or give back to him. How shallow our gratitude, how tardy our obedience, how frequent our backslidings. One reason why God suffers the flesh to remain in the believer is that he may exhibit his long-suffering to us. Word. God's patience to us. Think of how we offended God when we were non-believers. Think as believers how we still have sinned against him. Think of how ungrateful we are. Think of how little we use what he's given us to serve him. And yet he doesn't strike us down. He forgives us again and again and again and is patient with us. And friends, that should lead to thanksgiving. Now turn to page 7. Last thing for tonight. Mercy is a communicable Actually, remember, communicable means God shares it with us in part. Again, in part is a key word. We don't have it in full like he does. We have it in part. And I want you to see this in several places in Scripture. Luke 6, 36. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Again, just pause right there on that one. We're to, we're to show mercy to others in the same way God has shown mercy to us. Think about everything we've seen tonight of how God shows mercy. And that's the same way we're to live that out to those around us. I had a professor years ago tell us, he said, if only we would realize that we need to show people the same amount of mercy that God shows us. How different the world would be, how different our churches would be, how different our home life would be, friends, if we would extend the same amount of mercy to other people that God has extended to us. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So why does God in his mercy comfort us in affliction? Not just for us, but so that we can then pass that on to others and comfort others in the same way that God has comforted us. This is a communicable attribute. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Friends, this verse, again, we're being urged, like we talked about Sunday with the word urged. This is not something that we take lightly here. We are being appealed to in strong terms as possible that this is what we're supposed to be like by God's grace, not by human effort, by God's grace, Him changing us. We're to show humility, gentleness, patience, bear with each other in love, and we should be seeking to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Friends, if we would all strive to do that by God's grace, think of how different, again, our home life would be between husband and wife, how different our relationship with our kids would be, with our neighbors, our friends, and how different churches would be. And this is how, by God's grace, we strive to live. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Here it says sympathy, same idea as mercy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Or First John chapter 3, verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So just to remind us that mercy is something that we show as well as feel. With that said, I want to leave us with two, two challenging quotes to think about before we go to our groups. First one is again from Tozer. He says this, A great many people are very merciful in their beds, in their living rooms, in their new cars. They have compassion a noun, but they never compassionate a verb. They're very compassionate 
for a minute and a half, but they don't compassionate. That is, they don't do anything about it. As again, remember, we're to show mercy. Luke 6, 36, at the top of the page, be merciful as your Father is merciful. God just doesn't feel compassion. He shows compassion. Again, he, to use Tozer's word, he compassionates here, which we just looked at 1 John three seventeen. but it bears repeating in light of that. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then lastly, this is a prayer from Rosemary Jitson from Bible Study Fellowship. She said, Lord, your mercies are new every morning, but I am so little like you. I show very little mercy to others. Well, I expect you to show your mercy to me all the time. Please forgive me for my lack of mercy, and forgive me for not being more grateful for the mercy you've extended to me in Jesus Christ. That's a great prayer for us all to pray for ourselves. I need that, and I think we all need that as well. Well, as we get to our discussion time this evening, here's what I want us to, to think about in your groups and talk about in your groups tonight. First, often mercy is described as simply not getting what we deserve. Is that definition of mercy sufficient? In light of what we talked about tonight, do you think it's sufficient? You can have disagreements in your group. You don't all have to agree. That's okay. We're going to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You can disagree on these things. That's okay. But how would you do, so then how would you describe God's mercy in just one sentence? Again, in light of what we're thinking about God's mercy entails, how would you in one sentence summarize everything about God's mercy? Okay? Don't put semicolons and run about four sentences together. In one sentence, how would you describe God's mercy? That would be a little challenge for us. Second, God feels and shows mercy towards us when we are suffering or in distress. That's an incredible truth for us, friends. Why then does he not always remove those trials? God feels, our, feels compassion for us. He shows compassion for us when we're in our trials and suffering. So why does he not remove the trials? And then how does he show mercy to us while we're in the midst of trials and suffering? So think about that. As, this is for believers. As believers, when we're suffering, God shows mercy but why does his mercy not always include the removal of the trial? And then how do we experience that mercy? What does that look like in the midst of suffering? Number three, why do we want God to show us a lot of mercy, but then we are less willing to extend that same amount of mercy to others? What's going on there? Why is it that we can sit and bask in God's mercy, be at church and show great, and, and just sing about God's mercy and goodness, and then we pull out on Bell Road and someone cuts us off and we're like, you know. How does it happen when we leave church and we start yelling at our kids or, you know, our spouse? Or whatever? How do we sing and talk about, all oh, God's been so good to me this week, and then we don't extend it to others? What, where's the disconnect? Um, number four, how should understanding God's mercy impact how and for whom we pray? Number five, mercy is a communicable attribute. How should that truth impact how we treat one another here at Gateway? And then number six, what songs do you know that describe God's mercy and patience? So we're going to divide into groups. I want to think about that. Dave, let's get you a group back there.